Please turn to Micah chapter 4, where we left off last week. We looked at Micah chapter 3 and 4 about the wicked leaders in Jerusalem and how it was destroyed under them, but God promised his reign would return, his kingdom would be exalted, and would spread to all nations as people flow into Zion to hear the word of God and the result is peace and security in Christ. Now we're going to look even further into chapter 4 and then chapter 5 <clears throat> as we see this theme of Christ's coming and his kingdom continue. But in the midst of promises of rescue, even for present Jerusalem. So I have three points this morning. And the, the first we see in chapter 4, verse 6 to 5, verse 1, is promises of rescue and restoration in a time of turmoil. Promises of rescue and restoration in a time of turmoil. The time Micah is speaking to in this chapter includes the present political situation in Israel as well as their future political situation. What Micah sees presently for Israel and in the future for Israel is a time of turmoil. Israel, I couldn't help but thinking of this, is something like a country like Ukraine right now, a powerful enemy at their doorstep um, harassing them. This is what we see in actually chapter 5, verse 1. I'll have you turn your attention there first. Really, the section should run from 4.6 to 5.1. That's how it is in the Hebrew, Hebrew. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Chapter 5, verse 1, refers to the present political situation. The judge of Israel was the king of Israel. This is likely King Hezekiah being spoken of, whom Micah was prophesying to. King Hezekiah was threatened by the Assyrians. The Assyrians under Sennacherib had come and besieged Jerusalem. They were outside the walls. They had Hezekiah um, shut up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. They were, as it were, striking him on the cheek slapping him in the face. They mocked him and God. They mocked Israel as they stood outside the city. And so this was a call for all of Jerusalem to muster their troops because siege was being laid upon them and their king was being harassed. But then as you look further back into chapter 4, you see also the future turmoil of Israel being spoken of. This political turmoil would continue as Judah was eventually besieged by Babylon, pillaged by enemies, destroyed, and the people were taken away from their land into Babylon. In verse 6 and 7, God speaks of a lame remnant. He has afflicted and driven away. This is speaking of the exile to Babylon. In verse 9 to 10, he speaks of a time when the kings of Israel would be removed. And they would be subjected to this painful exile, which he likens to the groaning and difficulty of labor pains. He says in verse 9, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? 
that pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. And in verse 11, he speaks of the nations ganging up on Zion to destroy her. It says, now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. So this is the situation Micah is prophesying into. It's a time of turmoil, of political unrest, presently and in the future. And so in the midst of all that turmoil and the loss of their king and their city and their kingdom, God then promises rescue and restoration. We see in verses 6 to 8 that God says he will gather and bring back the lame remnant. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So he says he himself is going to reign again over his people. He says that the former dominion and kingship will return to Zion in verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So he's saying here that the Davidic dynasty would continue, that there, there would be a son of David sitting upon the throne once again. He says in verse 10 that he will rescue them from Babylon, redeem them from the hand of their enemies at the end of verse 10 there. He assures Israel in verses 12 to 13 that his purpose is actually to destroy all these enemies of the people of God. That after these enemies come against them, he would strengthen his people to deal with their enemies and devote their spoil to God. And so we see here hope even in the midst of this difficult time. Micah's telling them there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel, that they can trust God even now and his purposes, even as their society is ruined and they are subjected to their enemies because his kingdom is coming again. But one of the biggest problems in Israel here was that they tended to have wicked leaders, as we saw last week, bad shepherds over them. This language of shepherds is often used in the Old Testament to refer to the leaders of the people. They were to watch over the flock of the kingdom of Israel. Well, now they had a godly shepherd in Hezekiah, but even he was threatened. And there would be a time when all their kings were cut off from Israel and their current shepherd was threatened even now. So this is the trouble that is actually answered as we move into the second section here in chapter 5, verse 2 to 6. And this is where we have this famous prophecy of Christ. The common theme here is that shepherds for the people of Israel would come. New shepherds would protect them and deliver them from their enemies. First, there is that well-known prophecy in verse 2 to 5. And then the latter part of verse 5 and verse 6, there's another 
promise of several shepherds that God would raise up to deliver the people from the Assyrians. I want to look at these in reverse order. Let's look at verse 5 and 6 first. We see several shepherds here raised up for God's people. He says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then he will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So Assyria was no doubt the present enemy of Israel. They were a scary and powerful warmongering people. They had already conquered the north of Israel. They were moving into Judah. They were now at the doorstep of Jerusalem. There are certain political enemies no one wants to mess with. Think of how we fled from Afghanistan when the Taliban were taking over. These were a people who needed strong shepherds, strong leaders to rise up and deliver them from the present enemy. It seems this prophecy relates to men God raised up to deal with the Assyrians at that time. We know Hezekiah was a good king. He had three good men that went out to meet Sennacherib's army outside Jerusalem. We know that Isaiah the prophet was there encouraging Hezekiah. We know Micah from this passage obviously was prophesying to the king at the same time. We know that God even sent the angel of the Lord to kill some 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. God then even used Sennacherib's own sons to put him to death, and one of his sons became king in his place. You can read all this in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. So it seems to me these shepherds are referred to here that deal with the present enemy of Assyria. So here we have an answer of hope to the present political turmoil that the people found themselves in. But then also we have this promise of a single shepherd who is very special and deals with Israel's ultimate problem in verses 2 to 5. We see the single shepherd. We see a king, the king, was coming to Israel and he would shepherd them and give them peace. So Micah fleshes this out with a a portrait of this singular shepherd. So we will examine this for a few moments. What do we see about this shepherd in this portrait? First of all, in verse 2, we see that he would come from Bethlehem. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, he would come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a place of seeming insignificance, a very small backwoods village. Yet it was the place King David had come from. His ancestor Ruth married Boaz there. and They raised their family, which led on to David. He was this shepherd boy from Bethlehem, who then became the shepherd of Israel. It was from this place, God says, that another ruler would come forth. Because of this verse, the Jews, even of Jesus' day, had expectation that the Messiah, the anointed King of God, would come from Bethlehem. John chapter 7, verse 42 says, Has not the scripture said, 
that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. We see secondly here that this king existed and was promised long ago. It says his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This Messiah's coming forth was from of old. That is, he is not just newly being spoken of here. This was something already planned and promised for ages and ages. And the fact that he has been ready to spring forth, to come forth into the world for so long implies that he has been around for at least that long. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3.15, there was the promise of the seed of the woman. Later on, we learn in Scripture of the, the son of Abraham, the son of Judah, the son of David. This promise gets narrower and narrower as we go on in the biblical storyline. Now it says that his coming forth was from ancient days. We see thirdly here that he would come after the return from exile. It says here in verse 3, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The shepherd would come after the, the painful exile. In the previous passage, the previous chapter, the exile to Babylon was compared to birth pains. And so Micah picks this up again and says the ruler would come when this labor of exile was over. And then he says the rest of his brothers would return to the people of Israel. So the people of Israel would return to their land, but then the rest of this king's brothers would be added to them. So the whole family of Israel would be one again when the king from Bethlehem comes. The Israelites have been divided and conquered and scattered abroad, but now they would be united again. Fourthly, here we see the strong and majestic shepherd brings peace and security. Verse 4 and 5, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The shepherd would be strong, strengthened by the very power of God, standing to shepherd his flock in this strength. And he would come with the majesty of the Lord. We know that God himself is majestic, and this one would have the majesty of God upon him. He would give his people a secure dwelling and be their peace. As we saw in chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, the kingdom of God comes and it brings peace and security. So also this, this king comes and brings his people peace and security. He himself is our peace. And his fame spreads throughout the world. He is honored in all nations. It says, now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So who is this king? Who is this strong, majestic, ancient one, born of Bethlehem, who shepherds and brings peace and safety to his people? Who is this king who answers all of Israel's turmoil? Of course, we know he is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 2, Matthew records the fulfillment of this prophecy 
in the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph in that town of Bethlehem. Even magi, even pagan sorcerers from the east knew of Micah's prophecy and they came and they followed this great star. They, they knew that this king was worthy of worship. And they told Herod the king about this prophecy. And then in verse 9 to 11 it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We see that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. He matches the portrait perfectly. He came to humble Bethlehem. And even more humbly, in, in essentially the garage of a house, a stable, laid in a feeding trough for animals. He was not just a man, but born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit's power. This was God, united with flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The high and lofty one coming to lowly Bethlehem to be a new David, the true shepherd and king of Israel. This was the eternally begotten Son of God who existed before all ages, whose coming forth was from ancient days, before Abraham, before David, before Micah, before John the Baptist. This one existed and God's decree was for him to come into the world to save us. He came as promised since ancient days. He came after all the pain of exile, really after the true exile of Israel was over, an exile from, with sin and death and alienation from God. He came with even the literal pains of childbirth as he was born of Mary. And he came to unite all true believers in Israel and the rest of his brothers from even among the Gentiles as he gathered his people under one shepherd. And so he is not ashamed to call us brothers, as Hebrews 2.11 says. And being God the Son, and being filled with God the Spirit, he came with the very strength and majesty of the Lord, because he is the Lord. He stood and shepherded his flock and he still does, making us dwell secure and giving us peace in our souls and ultimate peace when he returns to judge the earth in righteousness. He shepherded us by laying his life down for the sheep and giving us peace by the blood of his cross. He preaches peace to the far and to the near and he himself is our peace. We can find peace with God through him and he continues to shepherd the church as its one good and chief shepherd. So what Micah is saying here is that though there was a, a present answer to the crisis in Israel, in those who conquered Assyria, the real ultimate answer to their crisis came with the arrival of Jesus Christ, this king being born in Bethlehem. Israel had its political problems, but its greatest problem was its own sin. That is the true exile from God. And as Matthew 
121 says, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So these oracles gave great hope to Israel, and they give great hope to us as well. We may find ourselves in turmoil, even nationally. We may be entering a crisis politically and economically. We wonder what could happen in our country. Well, we can trust in God who takes care of even these present things, all the while knowing that our greatest need is the shepherd from Bethlehem who came to set us free from sin's tyranny and give us peace and security of soul. And so this Christ comes, he gathers his people, he saves them, he becomes their peace. But Micah goes on in this chapter to describe the people of God. And what do we see here? We see a promise of a purified remnant among all nations. Chapter 5, verse 7 to 15. This passage begins with the phrase, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. This may seem to be a strange idea here because God has just promised to bring his people back into their land, away from the exile in Babylon, back to Israel, to be united under this king. But now he says, these people will be in the midst of many peoples. What does this mean? Well, as we saw back in chapter 4 last week, when the kingdom of God is exalted, this new Zion spreads throughout the whole earth. All peoples, all nations begin to flow into it, into the church of God. This is, again, the kingdom of Christ, God's remnant people in the midst of all nations. We see that even today the church exists in all corners of the earth, in Alaska and Chile, in Greenland and South Africa, in New Zealand and Japan, it's spread to all peoples. So what is in view in verse 7 to 9 is the people of God spread abroad, blessing and judging the nations. They are like dew falling on the grass, he says, bringing blessings wherever they go. But they are also like a young lion tearing apart its prey, cutting off their enemies from their midst as they conquer in spiritual warfare. Verses 10 to 14 then continues, noting a particular, a particularly wicked enemy that the people of God are cutting off, or rather that God himself is cutting off in their midst. The greatest enemy of the people of God is not Assyria, it's not Babylon, it's not sinful society, it's not even Satan or spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Micah focuses on this one great enemy, which is the people's own idolatry. He says in this passage that he will cut off and destroy all these idols among the people, their chariots and horses, their cities and strongholds, their sorceries and fortune tellers, their pillars, graven images and Asherah poles, all must be destroyed among the people of God as they are spread throughout all nations. Surely, as he mentions last in verse 15, God will certainly execute vengeance on all peoples that do not obey him. There would be judgment for all those who make themselves enemies of God. 
But the enemies Micah is most concerned about are the idols in the midst of the church. When God redeems the people of God, he cuts off their idols. And they go on in that work, cutting off their idols, because they now worship the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Their allegiance is to this king who has been born in Babylon. And as idolatry is like a weed that grows up in our hearts perpetually, it now needs to be plucked up constantly. But this is the work of God that he is doing in his people even now. He convicts us of those things that we find false security and peace in, those things that we trust in, those things that we worship, and he purifies us of them by Christ's blood. When Christ comes as king and is enthroned on the hearts of his people, all idols must be deposed and driven away. So friends, as we consider this whole passage here, let me close with three things. Number one, look to Christ as the shepherd that you need. God may raise up various helps in your life. He may bring change to present turmoil, changes in government so we have a better economy, changes in your job so that you might get a promotion. He cares about everything in our lives, but he knows that the greatest turmoil is the turmoil of an idolatrous heart, disordered and running away from him. So what we really need is our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we need to return to him as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We need him, the shepherd from Bethlehem, to rule over us, to lead us, and to make us dwell secure. Friend, whoever you are, look to Christ. He is this singular, special king that we all need. And secondly, worship this Christ, that he would come for us as we reflect on the mystery of the incarnate Christ. Can we help but to worship this Christ? I heard someone say recently that we cannot worship what is ordinary. We can only worship those things which are extraordinary, that are special, that are superior. And Christ is extraordinary in every way. We must see that here, we see much of this here. We see the King Eternal who became a baby in Bethlehem to rescue us. We see this one who came as the shepherd to lay his life down for the sheep. We see the majesty of this Prince of Peace who puts an end to war and adopts us into one family by his reconciling blood. We're to come to this Christ to look upon him to see his worthiness and to worship him in response as his name is to be great among all nations. And as we worship him, thirdly, we need to let our idols be cut off. It's only through more of the worship of Jesus that our idols diminish to nothing. As we look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim and fall into their proper place. There is much idolatry yet in us. There is much idolatry even that exists in this Christmas season. Christmas exposes what we actually live for. It's all around us. Is it 
Is it the materialism? Is it the gifts? Is it the greed? Is it the gluttony? But as we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, those things fall into their proper place. We can be thankful for the gifts God has given. Be content without the things that he has not given. We can give generously to others. We can resist greed and gluttony and enjoy and share the treasure of knowing Christ with fellow believers and unbelievers. Like those magi, we can throw our gifts down before Jesus Christ and worship him alone. So friends, as we move through the Christmas season into another year, may each day be a day to worship Christ alone and dethrone your idols so that we may be a pure people, blessing and judging the nations by our holy presence as our King continues to stand and shepherd us in his majesty. May his name be great in our hearts and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this vision of Christ. Lord, we pray that it would be on our hearts today, today as we think upon your birth, as we fellowship together, as we share meals together. Lord, may your name be exalted and may we truly praise you today from the heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.